Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 27th, 2017, and this is episode 1970 of the Survival Podcast. Jack is back active at the mic uh, after a successful TSP workshop. This one presented some unique challenges. Uh, the rain curse did did return, but we we could not complain about the weather for this event at all. Um, getting ready for this one was tough. I think a lot of people that came said they could kind of hear it in my uh, my voice leading up to it that uh, I was kind of stressed out, and uh, it, I was, and I still am. Uh, this year, man, especially the last few weeks leading up to this thing, it seemed like if something could break, it did, and if it could go wrong. It did. And uh, when something should have been easy to fix or easy to take care of, it wasn't. And uh, it just seemed to continue. And it, it, it certainly, even right up to this morning, has done so. Um, for those that won't, weren't here, I, I doubt many of you are aware of you know what, what happened personally while this was going on. But my father-in-law um, took a turn for the worse. He's been in a memory care facility for about a year and a half. And he actually passed away. Uh, Saturday night, right in the middle of our, our workshop. I was able to stay here and keep things running. There was really no need for me to go. He was not capable of, of knowing anybody was there, um, honestly. I did talk to him on the phone. My wife held the uh, phone to his ear and kind of said goodbye and stuff because I think that does help people let go sometimes. But I don't really know that he even... Uh, was capable of hearing anything uh, and processing any information. Uh, but, of course, it's very hard on my wife. I was you know, at peace with it. It's easier for me because it's not my father. Um, but, of course, my concern was my wife. And uh, so now we have a funeral to take care of this week. And, and fortunately, he was prepared there, and uh, most of it was already pre-set up. So that's one thing that makes life a little easier. And uh, Dorothy and I have talked about, you know, maybe we should look at doing that ourselves so that when uh, when we pass away, whoever's left to uh, to deal with it uh, has that one thing taken away from them. And it continued this morning. I went outside and uh, went out to the greenhouse, and the pump running the aquaponic system had stopped. And uh, then the little pump that was the backup had stopped, and that one was fixable, and I had a backup pump, and I installed it. And just sometimes, you know, guys, you just sit and you think, What's next? And then fate's like, here's what's next. So between all of that and uh, just being tired from a, the you know a workshop itself is, for for Dorothy and I is, is usually pretty grueling, uh, and for our staff, our staff works really hard. Um, I kicked around not doing a show today, and when I thought about it, I decided that I needed to do a show because you need to do what you do. You know, when, when, when times get like this, and, and, and again, while I'm at peace with, with Fred's passing, I'm not happy about it. I, and I, I'm certainly grieving over it. He was a good man. He was good to me. He treated me like a son. And um, he was really a, a guy that honestly was uh, was a hero. I mean, this is a guy that when he was a teenage kid, he was in the middle of hell in, in, in the war in Europe and was part of the underground. And... Uh, you know, you're risking your life when you do that. They caught his father. They never, well, they did catch him. He got away, uh, thanks to a, a soldier that let him go. And, uh, you know, when the Allies finally liberated the Netherlands, which is where he was from, 
And, uh, you know, they take, they take the war and they go forward with it. And, and you'd been through all this crap. You, you'd think, you know, just find your family and what you had, you know, he couldn't find his family at first and, you know, be grateful. And, and it's somebody else's issue now. He joined the Dutch Marine Corps, uh, lied about his age by a year, joined the Dutch Marine Corps and, uh, served five years as a military police officer in the Dutch, Dutch Marine Corps. Uh, so when you lose a guy like that and we realize when we look at it now, you know, he was, about to turn 90, that's the last of that generation, guys. And he was that young at the end of it. We're, we're, we're going to be saying goodbye to the last of men like that soon and, and realizing that, you know, it makes you realize that, as I always say, you got to do the best you can with your dash. So I'm telling you that up front today because I don't think I'll give you a home run show today. I'm not going to do any kind of special show or something like that. I'm going to do a normal Monday show, but I might lack a little bit of energy, but I will do my best to be informative and even entertaining for you. Before we uh, we get it, oh, well, I should tell you guys what we are going to talk about today, right? See, I'm off my timing here. Um, number one, we're going to talk about getting ready for tree planting today. We're just you got an old bed and you're going to change it into something new. Um, the death of retail continues and what that means. Listener feedback on the Rewind episodes that I ran last week. I got comments on the blog from millennials speaking the truth about what it takes to succeed today. I got a question on selecting ammo for new newbies, newbies to guns as a whole. Understanding the tack advantages of even micro-enterprises and understanding how not to get yourself in trouble and maybe even a little bit about the importance of the way you word things. Um... And a question on how to automate social media and a response of, here's why I don't automate my social media. And a question on balancing permaculture and paleo living. All of that and more in just a minute. Before we uh, we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. One of my favorite people I get to work with at TSP is Chef Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith can teach you to cook fantastic meals, develop a great food storage program, and more. He is also the source of my favorite line of spices and seasoning mixes that I use in all my weekly cooking. Check out his products, great blog, and podcast at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1970 because the episode is 1970. Alex Shrugged has two for us, and Southpaw Ben has one for us today. We have Pawn to King 4 and the Soul of a New Machine by Alex Shrugged. We have We're from the Government, and We've Come to Help, committed, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And the Sky Marshals are at your service from Alex Shrugged. Some notable births this year. Melania Trump was born. Paul Ryan, Ted Cruz, Gabrielle Giffords. You don't remember who that was. That was a congresswoman that was shot by the crazy guy that was uh, basically addicted to Al uh, Alex Jones's show. Uh, Nicole DeBoer, who was Esri Dax on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, was born. Tina Fey and Sarah Silverman. And Matt Damon, Heather Graham, and Rachel Weitz, who was Evelyn in The Mummy. And I still don't know who Rachel Weitz is. I don't know her. Uh, this year in film, Love Story. Airport, Patton, and MASH. And that is the movie version of MASH. And if you've never seen it, you should. This year in TV, we get the Partridge Family and 
Monday Night Football. And man has been different ever since. Howard Cosell pokes fun at Don Meredith while Keith Jackson does play-by-play. This year in music, Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel. Garfunkel, who's he? A Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. Let It Be by The Beatles. Note, Paul McCartney leaves The Beatles and puts out his own album this year. In other news, Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. Exploding oxygen tank strands moonbound astronauts in space. Against all odds, they return to Earth. I remember when that the movie with Tom Hanks came out, <clears throat> Apollo 13. I had a roommate at the time. This was a long time ago. And uh, it, it was in the theaters, and I was kind of interested in it. And I said, hey, Tim, do you want to go to the movie? He goes, what? I said, Apollo 13. He's like, no. I'm like, really? You don't want to see it? He goes, no, I know how it ends. It's like, really? And he was serious. It wasn't a joke. I mean, he meant it halfway as a joke, but he, that's really what he was like. Well, I know what happened, so it was a good movie. Earth Day is celebrated for the first time. Noah is created. PBS is here, and on and on. The Vietnam War's protests turned violent. Kent State students are shot. And the weather underground bombs the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And finally, the Ford Pinto and Chevy Vega are introduced. As if we didn't have enough problems. The Ford Pinto. Um, yeah, and the Chevy Vega. Not exactly uh, the, the, the top uh, quality uh, American engineering and automotive uh, services, I guess. Ponda King 4 and the Soul of a New Machine is what I'm going to read to you. Because there is a big lesson for what's coming in our future here. This year, the Unix clock begins its count. There are no microprocessors. A personal computer must be custom-built using transistor-transistor logic mainframes, such as IBM 360, have a whopping 4K of memory. NASA uses people, mostly women, with slide rulers as human computers. Computers are complex and ornery beasts and often break down. One time a computer programmer debugged a problem by pulling a dead moth out that had shorted out a logic circuit. Xerox has established a new research center that will develop Ethernet, laser printers, and the graphic user interface, and the mouse. Carnegie Mellon has poured its research dollars into a speech recognition machine. It is a military-sponsored project. So when the general asks for a demonstration, they set up a chessboard and a microphone to catch the general's voice. The machine will challenge the general to a game of chess, but as he clears his throat, the computer interprets the general's gurgling as a chess move. The computer responds, pawn to king four. This is going to take some time. Building computers in the 1970s was not easy. Even the early microprocessors required a lot of support circuitry. Memory was bulky, slow, and ran hot. People could imagine pocket computers after could could imagine pocket computers after all they saw them on Star Trek, but those were blinking lights and sound effects, and the voice of Mr. Roddenberry responding, "Data not found, cannot comply." Real computers didn't work that way, but those of us growing up with Star Trek wanted them to work that way. We poured our souls into a new machine, and we brought it to life. Designing and building computers is a special kind of crazy. My descent into insanity began after I read the book The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidler. I have not been the same ever since. That's Alex's take there. Um, this is why I, I chose this one. I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And I remember going to school and doing some work on the first computers. And it wasn't very, wasn't very jazzy, man. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, we did some basic programming to basically write a small program that worked like a calculator where you could change a couple variables and it would tell you that, you know, 2 plus 2 is 4. And that, But that was like to learn how to code a little bit and just understand that coding was a language. 
And uh, we did word processing in high school. You know, so you had, I had, you know, some business classes, and it was like, here's typing, and then here's typing, because we had typing class. I am old, I guess. We had, to, I had learned to type on an electric typewriter, but we also had keyboarding, and basically it was a word processing class, how to, how to do everything on a computer, which was a hell of a lot easier than a typewriter. And they would, think, why are we even typing on typewriters? This can't possibly last. But all of the adults around me just kind of poo-pooed this whole thing, this whole computer thing. There was something I knew that they didn't know. I knew what the Internet would be like. I didn't know exactly what it would be like, but I had already experienced the beginnings of the Internet through simple chat boards. As a kid, I'm talking like junior high now, I had a Commodore 64. Later, I got to upgrade to the 128D. That's when it was super cool, right? We had a modem. The kind you actually dial, you have to know a phone number to dial with, and the phone sat in the cradle. And we had a whole list of different boards where we could log in and leave messages for other people and communicate with other people. And when you showed up, you'd see existing conversations. I didn't know how exactly this was going to work out, but I knew that sooner or later, when you had a computer, it wouldn't just tell you things. It would connect you to things. And I knew we were going somewhere cool. But I remember so much, even people my age not getting it and saying, ah, you know, those are just for big companies and stuff like that. This whole automation thing that we're living through right now, this whole shift in technology, this whole, you know, Internet of Things, cryptocurrencies, all of it, it's bigger. It's bigger than what happened between, let's say, 1980 and 2010. It's bigger than in 1996 when... AOL started spamming your actual, you know, real metal mailbox with a little disc, and you put it in your new snazzy computer, and you fired it up, and the first time you heard, you've got mail. It's bigger than that. I promise you. Keep your eyes open. My take by Jack Spearco. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. With that, let's get into uh, your first email for me today. Remember, if you want to be in a show like this, um, I should have said this in the beginning too, just send an email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure you put TSPC in the subject line and uh, ask your question or make your point in like one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times and give me the details. That'll help me screen it faster and make it more likely that you get on the air. This first one's from Chris. It says, hi, Jack. Any suggestions on how to turn over an old annual flower bed to plant fruit trees? I have a 265 square foot of beds that have had small evergreens, bushes, and flowers from the previous owner and would like to redo the whole thing. I've been able to sell the evergreens in Craigslist to cover the cost of the fruit trees. All that is left are small bushes and very small amount of leftover mulch. 
It's the best to dig these out. Add some compost until then plant, then mulch, other suggestions. Thank you in advance, Chris. First of all, first of all, I am so happy that Chris included the detail that I dug up the evergreens and sold them and used them to pay for the fruit trees. See, that's outside-the-box thinking. That is like such common sense. Here's a perfectly good tree that somebody paid for. And it's bigger than when they planted it. It's small enough that I can dig it out. If somebody paid for it once and I don't want it, somebody would probably like to pay for it again. And that money just went back in his pocket and now is being invested in the type of plants he wants that will also feed him. So, hoorah to you, Chris, for that. Okay, so I think part of what you have to do is look at the total totality here and what do you want it to look like, right? Do you care if there's some little ornamental perennial shrubs and stuff down there, even if they're not stuff that produces something edible for you? Because if you, if you don't mind that, then you don't have to do much. I, I would just lay down a new layer of mulch and plant your trees. I would not dig it up. I would not till it. I would not mess with it. Um, but if, if there's some kind of reconfiguration that needs to go on, then you might end up doing that. Do you have you know bad problems with some sort of a noxious weed that you're better off doing some kind of mechanical removal of? And be careful with that because some noxious weeds, if you till them, you make more of them. Right, so you have to kind of determine the whole, the kind of the overall holistic view of what you want it to look like, and worry about more of like what we would call the hardscaping than the softscaping of what you're doing. Now, here's why I'm saying this: you really don't need to prepare the ground to plant trees. You plant trees in the ground. You go on with your your life to a large degree, unless there's something drastically wrong that you're trying to address. Assuming you have a place where you can dig a hole with a shovel deep enough to put the tree in, and you don't plant the tree too deep, and you can provide the tree some irrigation support for its first year or two so that it, it can establish itself and get its, its you know roots into the ground, barring major drought, if you selected a, a tree that's right for your area, it shouldn't need much maybe other than some organic fertilizers, uh, maybe some amendments, maybe a little bit of uh, garret juice and uh, uh, a little garlic pepper tea spray in the in the spring, um, some rock minerals, things like that uh, on the soil, and just continuously mulching, not up to the tree, but around the tree, out by the drip line. When you plant a tree and you mulch that tree, your mulch should actually be thickest where it ends on the outside. And it should get thinner as it comes to the inside, and like a foot around the base of the tree, there should ideally be nothing. Sometimes that's not practical. Uh, sometimes you have such evaporation in some climates that you have to really lightly mulch up to the tree. Or you can provide protection like I do with some of my trees with something like an irapan or some type of a weed mat that actually keeps the ground covered. But once that tree's established, that should go away. Trees like the area around their trunk bare. And again, a big thing, you don't want your trees planted too deep. And that is the number one reason... The people kill trees. They plant them too deep. Number two reason is they buy trees in pots and they don't make sure that they get rid of the circling roots. You can either untangle them. I sometimes completely bare root them. I get a big uh, kiddie pool. I fill it up with water and I wash the roots completely clean of the dirt that they come in and I stretch them out in the hole. That is uh, labor intensive but generally works really well because those roots can now find the shape that they're supposed to. But if you can't do that, maybe there's too much root binding, whatever, then you take a razor knife and you cut 
the circling roots, especially on the outside, you check the bottom. A lot of times you have a root that's gone down to the bottom and it's hit the bottom of the pot and it's turned and it's growing back straight back up underneath the tree itself. All of these things are unhealthy. What's not unhealthy is planting trees in the native soil that they're going to grow in. So you have to take a little bit different of a view when you're planting a tree versus uh, corn or a tree versus peas or a tree versus carrots or something like that. And here's why. The, one of the reasons that we till is not just that it works, but because we're going to actually loosen the soil in the like 90% or more of the area that the plant we're going to put into that is going to go. So when we plant, and if we, if we were to till down about 10 inches, and we plant peas or beans or beets, you might have some hair roots that make it deeper, but in general, the majority of those roots are going to sit right in that area we tilled. So since it's an annual, it needs to get off the ground fast, we got one season to get things done, it, it can be helpful, especially if done properly. I prefer no-till, but sometimes you till because you got to till. When we plant a tree, if we do it right, And if it's growing the way it's supposed to, it will rapidly send roots past wherever we could till. And it's going to have to make its living in that soil. If we make the spot we're putting it into too cherry perfect, we're doing a tree a disservice, it's not going to go out and hunt to find things. And it's not going to develop a healthy root system. Also, if that area is too soft, that tree can, you know, be blown over, fall over, even after a year or two of being staked. We plant a tree right, we probably don't even have to stake it. We probably don't even have to stake it. Sometimes you have a really high wind area, looser soil profiles, things like that. The rocking of that tree can actually disturb the roots, so it might need to be staked for a year. If, if so, it should be staked loosely. It should be able to move back and forth, but it should be limited in how far. That's how we loosely uh, restrain the tree. So just don't really get too concerned about what to do with the soil. So do you dig out the little bush, the, you know, the box elder or bush or whatever it is? Do you like it? Leave it alone. Do you not like it? Dig it out. See if you can sell it to somebody on Craigslist or you know compost it or, or something like that. So hopefully that makes sense. And it's a good question. And again, uh, man, my favorite part of that is I pulled these evergreen trees out and bought myself some... Uh, Fruit trees, using the money that I made, dumping them on Craigslist. Good stuff, bro. Okay, this next one certainly tracks with some of my comments about the transition that we're going through in the world right now with technology and with uh, consumer patterns and with uh, the future. And a situation where many people will find themselves looking for work. And, and hopefully they won't look for the kind of work they had when they lost it because that's the problem in the first place. This one comes from Andy in Winston-Salem. He says, hey, Jack, not news per se, but a good summary of the ongoing retail apocalypse. This is going to be bad for some small communities where these stores have half-decent employees, not to mention the distribution jobs that will be trimmed behind uh, Andy in Winston-Salem. Indeed, it was on Business Insider by Haley Peterson, and she says, the retail apocalypse has officially descended on America. Haley, I think you're right, but you're a little late to the party. Just nobody has really, really been paying attention to it yet. But uh, she did a pretty good article. It says, thousands of mall-based stores are shutting down in what's becoming one of the biggest waves of retail closures in decades. More than 3,500 stores are expected to close in the next couple of months. Department stores like JCPenney, Sears, Kmart are among the companies shutting down stores, along with middle-of-the-mall chains like Crocs, 
BCBG, who I don't know who they are, Abercrombie and Fitch, and Guess. I guess I don't really, I know who they are, but I sure don't shop them. I'm going to stop there for a second, though. I want to put something in perspective for you. 3,500 stores. And you think, well, it's all retail and whatever. Well, the first thing I want to put in perspective is the number of jobs we're talking about. Now, some of these shows are, stores are big. A J.C. Penney's, a, a you know, a, a Sears might employ a hundred or more people. That one store. Some of them are smaller stores, though. They might employ twenty people ish. But if the average is twenty-eight people per store, that's a hundred thousand jobs going in this one sector this year alone. A hundred thousand. A hundred thousand. Modern football stadiums struggle to get near that point of 100,000 attendees. It's like a golden thing if you could make a stadium with 100,000 people. So think of the biggest football stadium you ever saw in your life. And think about it like during the Super Bowl when the whole place is jam-packed and all the people that are in there sitting down, all the people on the field, that whole thing. And that number of people have lost their jobs. And I'll put a link to the article so you could read the, the rest of it. But I'll give you kind of some things to think about with this. Number one, you think to yourself, well, I mean, you know, selling shoes at Sears, that's a transitional job anyway. Well, first of all, if it is, great, but then don't you need a transitional job? But I think people that live in big cities have a totally different understanding of stores and retail and people that work in those environments than people in small towns. It makes me think of when I, go, when I vacation in Sanibel Island. There are people that work at grocery stores in Sanibel Island. They're in their 40s or 50s. They're not. They're not like dead end losers. You know, I'm talking. They work in you know like jobs like I did when I was a teenager. But they're good at what they do. They're competent. They're they're decently. I mean, that's a kind of tourist area, so they're they're probably better paid than uh, than most people that do their job. But um, you know, their cost of living is higher as well. And when I talk to them, it's it, and I don't mean to insult anybody that's in any of these professions in a big city. I'm not saying everybody in a big city sucks, but we've all been to a store, and you're like, so I need some help with this. And getting help is like, it's worse than just figuring it out yourself. It, it's so awful. Oh, I got a hack for you here, though. What, what, it's a great hack. If you're at Lowe's and you're trying to find something, Lowe's department store, it probably works at Home Depot, too. Go on their, their website on your phone. And search for it. And when you find it, it will give you the bin and aisle that they keep it in. And sometimes it'll be off by one or two, but it'll put you right in the right area. Anyway, so you're at Lowe's, you know, and you're like, well, I need this. And like, uh, you know, well, I don't work this section. You work at this store. I know where most of the stuff in this store is. I just don't know. Where to, how can you work? It? That kind of thing. When you are in these small towns, even in the bigger retail chains at all, a lot of times you're dealing with people on a totally different level. And a lot of times here in these, these larger cities, these jobs are until I find something better. But a lot of times in these small, smaller parts of the country, these are jobs that people keep for 10, 20, or 30 years or more. Some people keep them until they retire. And they, they tend to move up in the organization, maybe not to the CEO of the country, but you know they end up being a store manager or something like that. They make a decent income. So that's being lost. The other thing is, if a mall loses Sears, Sears says, because what Sears is saying this year is, you know what, if that store's not profitable, it's gone. And the thing is, they've been doing that for a long time. And they just keep whittling them away and whittling them away and whittling them away. And uh, let's say you have, uh, you have a franchise store. 
and you could have went to like a strip mall or something like that, but you paid extra money to be in a mall, okay? Because you because you get foot traffic from being in a mall. It costs a lot more to lease a, a store space in the mall than it does to lease a store space at like a strip mall, you know, or a conventional retail outlet where it's not all enclosed like the mall model. In your contract, it probably gives you some level of pushback if they lose a Macy's or a Sears or a Penny's because they're one of the anchor stores, one of the big draws. And what will happen is the mall loses Sears. All of the other tenants then automatically pay less rent because the mall lost a, like my, my, my store, keeping my store is not worth what you're asking me until such time as they find someone that's as big as a Sears to come take that space back up. So now the, the mall has lost money, and they don't build malls and pay cash for them. They're leveraged with debt like anything else, much shorter, higher interest debt than you, you know a mortgage on your house. So now this becomes a cash shortfall. Well, a couple of your little retailers say to hell with this, and they leave. You lose one more anchor store, and you're out, and the question's not if, it's when. So you see the malls implode everywhere. And then the stores that leave when that happens – Many of them, so the, the 3,500 is just a starting place. And in, in the article, it says a couple of interesting things. One is, yeah, they're cutting them to, to save money. Uh, for instance, Payless is cutting a 1,000 stores. Radio Shack, 552. I didn't know there were 552 Radio Shacks left. I used to love Radio Shack. Uh, some stores like Sears are only closing 42. But again, you're talking about hundreds of people. Each one, Gander Mountain's closing 30. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they closed the one that they just built right by right where I live. Because when I go there, there's never anybody in there except like right in the middle of hunting season. And then you can't find anybody to, to help you. It, it's, it's amazing some of these places are even in business. But they're closing because, yes, people are shopping online. But they're also changing their spending habits. People are spending more money on travel and food and entertainment than things. See, if you run a consumer-driven economy long enough where you sell people on the, the, the concept of acquiring things, eventually they acquire enough things that there's no place left to put them. They realize the insanity of it, and they begin to do something that so many people are, are doing these days to, you've heard the term, pare down. To the point where we have a, a whole cult around tiny homes, Right? Um, which I think is going too far to the extreme, but it's a it, it's a natural it's the natural extreme of the blowback. The blowback's much larger than that, and people are beginning to realize like experiences are something that you that are, are more valuable than stuff. And and this all means there's plenty of opportunity in the future for entrepreneurial type people, but the more you are a dedicated employee, the more you better diversify what you can do, because this is. Again, I want you to think about it. I, how often I said last year that you would see major job losses in the retail sector in 2017. This is just what you know of in March. What you know of in March. The next earnings reports that come out, you'll see this happen at least as much again. And it's not happening now. It's continuing to grow. This snowball started rolling all the way back about 96, 97. And it's just like a snowball on the cartoon. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Make sure you're not underneath it. Make sure you're going with the momentum. Make sure you're figuring out what to, what, what to do in the wake of the path of the snowball instead of to be 
the wake of the path of the snowball. This next one comes from Mike, and it's on the Rewind episodes. <clears throat> it says, hi, Jack. I don't feel like I'm getting screwed. Count me in as one who is completely on board with the TSP Rewind shows, and here's why. This show has changed lives. More correctly put, this show has become a tool that enables people to change their own lives. I'm going to pause there a second, Mike. You are a, you are a, a lifestyle, uh, with a lifestyle management degree graduate uh, at the Ph.D. level from Jack Spierko University for phrasing it that way. Um, that's, what, you know, I have constantly, people, you've changed my life. I didn't change your life. You changed your life. And that's what the show is, and that's what the community built around this show is. It is a, a roadmap or a guide for people who want to make a change in their life for the better who, or who want to improve what they already have. Like maybe they don't really want to change it. They just want to do even more of what they're doing, and they want to figure out tools to let them do it. I am a map, and it's up to you how you use that map. Because two people could have the same map and get decidedly different results. Let's talk about three people using the same map for a second before I read the rest of this. So one uses the map. He wants to go from Florida to Washington. Another uses the map, and he wants to go from Florida to Pennsylvania. They both use the map. They're both very happy. They both get to where they want to go. Fourth guy goes to use the map, doesn't know north from south. He's pissed off at the map. Fourth guy is given the map, but he doesn't want a map. He already knows how to get where he's going. Or he doesn't know that where he's going is not a good place to go. It's all up to the individual. It's the same thing with a hammer. You give a guy a hammer, one guy builds a house, another guy uses it as a paperweight, and a third guy uses it to bash somebody's head in and mug people at stores. It's, it's, it's up to you. And, and that's so important that people understand that, that I'm just one guy. And if I can live my dream, then you can live your dream. And that's what this show is about, is teaching you how to do that. Not a guarantee that you'll do that, but how to how to get in, on track into that direction. Here's what he says. Well, more quickly put, this show has become a tool that enables people to change their own lives. In the nine years that this show has existed, so much important content has been put out there that you couldn't possibly find all the diamonds of essential information unless you had the time to go back and listen through from episode one to present. I'm finally seeing some of these diamonds being dug back up. On numerous occasions, I've thought to myself, Jack... You need to do more back-to-basic shows to revisit some of the core principles of modern survivalism. For example, every new listener needs to hear the core tenets of the 12, or the 12 planks. That's what this show is really about. In fact, us long-time listeners could stand to hear it again often as well. I'm not so confident that each new listener is going to go back and search these essential topics out. You just don't know what you don't know. So I truly think that some of these core topics should be reviewed every year at a minimum. The TSP Rewind is a great way to do this, especially the way it's being done with fresh intro content. I think it's fair to say that I speak more more than a small fuel, fuel to say the same way, but don't have time to say it. I don't really take time to comment very often. Usually I have something to say as I'm listening in the car, but by the time I get to the keyboard, life or work has intervened. I just want you to know that I support this Rewind format and acknowledge that you need a effing break and it doesn't say effing this is the word uh once in a while thanks for all you do man mike in idaho thanks mike i appreciate that and, and i kind of did point out that some people didn't like the rewinds and i'm sorry you know you're gonna get a week of them it, it's funny like the people that, that did have a problem with the rewinds there was like four or five that like either called the think line or use a speak pipe they basically tell me i'm tired of this one guy said, yeah, i used to be an msb member but i'm not going to do it if i'm not getting enough new content or whatever 
I just, it's like almost, you know, we're so close to 2,000 episodes. Um, I, I do think there's some great stuff back there. And I, I do think, you know, I'll continue to once in a while do a back to basics show. But if I'm going to cover something that I've covered perfectly in the past, you know, being able to take a day to work on my farm or spend with my wife or go have lunch with my son now that he has regular hours, you know, in the end, that's what I'm going to do. And uh, if that really bothers anybody, you know, I'll stick, I'll stick to doing what I've always done, taking care of the people that love what we do and want more of it, like Mike here. So thank you, Mike, and thanks to all of you. Most of the feedback on the Rewinds has actually been really, really good. And uh, I think I did a good job for you guys last week kind of theming that week out. Normally I won't be doing that because I won't be doing that many in a row, right? I guess like on vacation I'm going to. Uh, geez, I'm going to have to, boy, we're going to need one of those with the way this has gone this year. I got to take my wife somewhere where she can just say the hell with everything, drink a margarita and take a nap on the beach. Um, got to do it. Uh, but usually, you know, it'll be a, a day here or a day there or maybe a two day thing, you know, if I go on a hunting trip or something like that over a weekend. But, uh, I, I hope I hope I'm doing a good job for you guys. I hope I'm still doing as good a job for you as I did in the very beginning. I, I work hard at it every day, and we all need a break sometimes. Um, next up, I have a comment on a blog. This wasn't sent in. Everyone wants to watch a comment on a blog, and I'm like, that's awesome. And I, uh, I I pull it out for some show content to give you some background on the comment thread. What had happened here is the guy whose comment I'm going to read basically went on a tear on a rant, pissed off about his fellow millennials. And, and tired of them sitting around bitching and whining and waiting for the government to help and, and whatever. And someone else came back and said, please understand that a lot of these people, you know, are stuck in this position. And they were told that this is what they were supposed to do. And I, I say that, too, at times in their defense. Um, and, and this is the response that uh, Professor Sweat uh, left, said, I agree with you there. I have a degree that has gotten me nothing because I used to believe the lie. It wasn't until September of 2015 that I finally pulled my head out of my ass and started driving for Uber to supplement my meager office job income. I moved the hell out of California and now work from home independently as a freelancer. I also drive for Postmates about 15 hours a week. This podcast has inspired me to start my, designing my own business, and if all goes according to plan, I'll have it running in about five years. Skilled workers are needed, and it's the ugly truth that many of our peers can't even change a tire, much less work on a car. That's all I'll say about that. I know people with the same attitude as people you speak of, and I get your frustration. It hits me in my, on the regular when I see our peers express themselves in ways only a lifetime of brainwashing can do. Suppose I'll be reiterating here, but you can't blame someone who has been lied to their whole lives for believing the lie. I do also see people waking up as well. With the Internet, we are better informed as to how and when government is pissing away our tax dollars in pursuit of corporate welfare and warfare, among other things. And since Trump is such a polarizing figure, maybe now more than ever, more millennials might start to see through the BS of statism. Everyone is paying attention. I think our role in all this is to do what we do and live by example. We need to show our peers a better way to live. It's up to them if they want to do it. You know, I was listening to John Pugliano at the workshop, and I don't remember what the date was. It might have been 69 or 70 or 68, something like that. But it was the peak of male employment in, in the United States, is what he said. 
And on some level, it coincides with women entering the workplace at, at higher levels because there's you know, twice as many people competing for jobs. But his point was prior to this, you know, from the end of the Great Depression right up to the peak of male employment in the workplace, if you were a man and you didn't have a job, you were a bum. That's what people considered you a bum. If you wanted a job, you could get a job. It might not be the job you, you dream of, but you could get a job until you found a better job. Like any able-bodied male that, that was willing to work and put some sweat in could find a job. I don't know if that's not the case anymore because they're not willing to do the work or they're not willing to do the work because we had such a long period of not having it be that way anymore. Where people would be willing to do anything and still couldn't find a job. I know I had it, uh, when I first moved here to Texas, it was kind of hard to find a job, but it wasn't that hard. You know, I had, I had different opportunities too. I had one that I kind of wish today that I had, I had, I'd taken at least for a little bit. I met a guy in a bar one night, a local bar that I used to walk to, uh, from the apartment I was living in. And, uh, you know, we were talking and bullshit. And I said, well, what do you do? He goes, I, I frame houses. I said, does it pay good? He goes, it pays pretty good when you get good. He said, but it doesn't pay bad to start either. I'm like, well, how much is it? He says, uh, they pay starting guys $10 an hour. $10 an hour? What, you know? And I had a few other things going on, and something came up where I thought was a better long-term opportunity. But um, he said, basically, you know, I'll talk to my boss, but if you want to do this, if you'll work hard and show up and, and, and do the things you're supposed to do and learn, you, I get his job. I knew the guy 10 minutes. I, I don't know how many conversations are going like that. Uh, around anymore and that wasn't that long that wasn't John's peak of employment but on the other hand now there's so many other opportunities driving for Uber not an option when I moved to Texas in 1993 you know driving for Lyft driving for Uber Amazon Dash or whatever the hell it is Amazon you know the Amazon driver thing uh, he said he drives now for post something is what he said in the, I, I didn't know that was a thing But uh, it sounds like it's some kind of uh, like curry service, courier service or maybe some kind of office supply service or something like that. I mean, there's all these different little things that you can do that are very much like an on-demand. No, they're not a full-time income, but they are an income from a source that gives you a lot of freedom as to when and how and where and having other opportunities. And we have a, a whole generation of people sitting around bitching that it's too hard. And we have a whole generation of people that are one generation ahead of them, like my generation, Gen X. Basically, we're the, like, like the, the light, the millennial lights. Like those of us that made it, fine. But those of us that didn't, they're bitching just as much as their kids and their their, their buddies' kids are. They just bitch a little bit differently. They're not as saddled with with collegiate debt. They they did it 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And and this this whole thing is, is a buildup. And we, I'm going to tell you that everybody, I don't care how old or young you are, you have to make a choice right now how you're going to deal with the transitions of society. And if you think somebody's going to fix it, you're wrong. You're wrong. In many ways, the market fixes itself over time, but you don't have time to wait. And I'm going to explain it in a way that will make sense to you no matter what your age is. Let's say you're 25 and... Um, You're in that state that so many millennials are in that 25 to 35 or younger range 
where you you got the degree or you're, you're getting the degree and you have this huge debt and you know the market will pretty much do this evolution and come back into some sort of like stability for everyone who's willing to participate at any level within 20 years you'll be 45 you'll be 45 and you will have pissed the best years of your life away so let's say you're 45 And you get hit by one of these things. You lose that job. And you don't take this attitude of kicking ass and taking names and doing whatever you got to do to get it done. Okay, so you're 45 now. So by the time all this shit flushes itself out and we figure out what to do with it, you're 65. Hello, retirement. Oh, actually, goodbye, retirement, right? So if you're 60 and, it, and this, this hits you, and you're not quite ready for retirement, you can't quite pull that off, what are you going to do, wait till you're 80? I mean, you tell me what the good age is to get hit by this. I mean, what what 20, what 20 years of your life can you afford to piss away? And that's what people are doing right now. When you're waiting for Trump to make America great again, you're pissing away, well, the next four to eight years until you believe in the next person that's going to use you as a sucker. Okay? And I'm not completely anti-Trump. I'm pretty much anti-all politicians, but... He's done a few things I think actually make sense. I'm on board with a few of them. You know? Doesn't matter. Not It doesn't really fix my life if my life is jacked up. And how many years have you already wasted waiting for someone to do something about your problem? Or for things to get better? When I used to consult, and I would start talking to a company, and I would start to, like, what they would say, what they'd really want you to do is come in and give them a little intellectual masturbation and maybe a tip or a trick or two, help them get a new catchphrase, maybe get a ranking on the Internet, and they didn't really want what a consultant really is supposed to do. They didn't want you to do what any good doctor does when he sees a scab and something's wrong with it and remove it and look at the wound underneath it. And when, you, when I started hearing things from people like, well, when things pick up, I'd say, I can't help you. You're going to be out of business soon. I'm like, what? Well, I mean, you've got major problems. Your revenue is down three consecutive years significantly. You're not acquiring new clients. You have no fresh new ideas. And when I point these out, you say to me, when things pick up. By the way, it was pretty good time to be in business when this was going on. Well, people look at a business like that and they mock them and they'll say, oh, my God. Well, you know what? Most people are doing that in their daily lives. When things get better, when things pick up. No, when you make them pick up, when you make them get better. Good comment there by Professor Sweat. Next, I have a question on selecting ammunition for people that are new to the world of firearms. Jason says he really enjoys my podcast. His family lives on four acres in uh, Mills River, North Carolina. Bought the only guns they have ever owned at Christmas time. It's only a couple months ago. Glock 19 and a Ruger 1022. I trust your insight and want to ask what ammo you would use for protecting the homestead if you were me. We have coyotes and sometimes wild dogs and rabbits and groundhogs and the like. All of the choices for the number of grains and brands is very confusing. Confusing. I'm shopping on bulkammo.com and interested in what you would recommend for your everyday magazines in these calibers. Thank you for any help. Sincerely, Jason. I'm pretty sure the Glock 19 would have to be a 9mm. I'm not a Glock guy, not a 9mm guy, So, but I'm pretty sure that's like the most popular Glock in the world, the Relatively small frame, not little one, but small frame clock. Um, it doesn't really matter as much as you probably think it does. I have people freaking out right now. It doesn't. Trust me, I'm a ballistics nerd. I can keep up with the best of them. But 
I'm going to liken it to something totally unrelated to it so I can bring it back around. When I was a kid getting ready to go hunting deer for the first time, I had every ammunition catalog I could get my hands on. There was no internet, right? So you had paper cat. You'd write to Federal and write to Remington and write to Winchester. Or you'd see magazines like Shooting Times would have a lot of stuff printed out, like stuff like that. And I had gone through them. I had them all highlighted. I had gone through all the reloading manuals. I'd, and I was looking for the best 30.06 round to shoot a deer with. Okay, What I needed was... 150 to 180 grains, anything in there. And other stuff would work, but that would be ideal. Uh, with an expanding bullet. So a lead core, copper jacket, and that's it. And my uncle basically told me I was being a dumbass and said, you're wasting your time, kid, because I ain't paying for any of that crap. Um, go, we're going to go get you a couple boxes of Remington green and yellow box, uh, in, in, uh, 180 grain. That's what everybody uses around here. You shoot a deer with it, it's going to die. He was right. I'm not saying that was the perfect round, but the point was we didn't need a perfect round. Why? Because you're shooting a deer. They don't. The deer aren't walking around with flak jackets on, right? And we shoot a deer in Pennsylvania. We're in the woods. A hundred yard shot was a long shot, very long. Most of the deer I shot in Pennsylvania were shot under 50 yards. In fact, most of them I would say were under 30 yards. So if you could shoot at that range and you hit a deer in the vitals with any modern sporting 30.06 round, it's going to be a dead deer. You shoot a coyote with a 9mm, you hit it where it needs to be hit, it's going to die. You shoot a, a, a rabbit or a groundhog in the head with a 22, it's going to die. So I think what's happened is you're new to guns, and you're like, I'll go get ammo, and it just seems like, oh, my God. What I would honestly do, if there's a good gun shop in your area, I would go talk to them if you if you want a personal defense round about helping you select a personal defense round for your Glock. And then if bulk ammo happens to sell that, am that ammo in bulk uh, and you want to buy a bunch of it, go ahead. But the reality is you don't need a bunch of bulk ammo, right, for your personal defense round. That's something that hopefully you never deplete your supply of. And then look for something that's economical and affordable. You know, 124-ish grains, a little lighter, 115. I don't care, a little heavier. I don't care. It's, it's affordable, Probably to be the most affordable full metal jacket. Um, that's not a great hunting round, but I don't think the nine millimeter is ideal for all the things you listed anyway. But it'll work, and if that's what you need, fine. Or get yourself an expanding round if you can find something economic and affordable. But get out and shoot. If you, especially if where you live, you can shoot. Focus on learning the gun, and please, if you have not taken a safety course or found a safety mentor, do that. I get nervous when I hear people. Worrying about what ammo to pick two months after they bought their gun. Because you might have experience, you just didn't ever own a gun, and you might have done. So I'm going to say get some training and some experience and some trigger time. On the 22, do you know what my number one choice used to be? Used to be for 22s Remington Thunderbolts. 40 grain round nose, Remington Thunderbolts. And um, why? They were cheap. And they worked every time. When I put them in any of my semi-autos, I pulled the trigger, they cycled and they ejected, and they were accurate. Now, they weren't like match-level accuracy, but they were minute-of-squirrel-head accurate, you know, out to 50. I've even shot a couple squirrels with my 22s at as far as 100 yards in a head. You shoot a squirrel in the head with a 22, it's a dead squirrel. If you actually want, in my opinion... Um, Because none of those are long-range weapons either. I would consider, if this is your main concern, 
Wild dogs, rabbits, coyotes, groundhogs, and the like. Shotgun. Uh, a, a lightweight pump 20 gauge, or even a Ford 10 if you could find one. Not really a single shot. You might need some follow-up shots. I shot an awful lot of raccoons because they were a major nuisance at my place in Arkansas. Four ten with number four buck, it puts their lights out. I shot a raccoon in Arkansas with a twenty two in the head, and I shot it in the ear hole. Dead through, twenty two has no recoil. I saw the impact, the bullet go in the ear hole. It couldn't have been better. At least I didn't think it could have. Apparently it could have. It was nighttime. Shot it off the porch through the window. I was wearing, it was like, you know, we hear stuff getting tore apart out there. So I get up in the middle of the night, I'm wearing a pair of Crocs, and my boxer shorts, and I have my Patrick Rohrman, uh, it was actually the Mammoth Tusk knife that he made me, the first, it's a little neck knife, little bitty knife. And I, I go down, and I, I don't bring the gun, I shot it in the ear, it's dead, right? I go down the stairs of our deck, and it's like a ravine. And I'm, I, just as I get close enough to this raccoon, it had been pouring rain, too. And I'm in like clay, and you know, like red clay when it gets wet, where you're like, you're going to fall on your ass if you make one wrong move. And as I get down to it, it comes back to life like a freaking zombie. It freaking stands up, and it rears its teeth at me, and it starts hissing and growling at me. I'm, you know, like my man parts are like head level with this thing. And if I, I, I could feel myself slipping. So I had to pull my knife off, and I stabbed this raccoon multiple times to take him out. Because, not because I was like trying to all oh, be Bear Grylls and kill her. No, it was like if I, I really felt like if I went backwards, I would fall on a wounded animal when you are weakened will attack you. And a raccoon can do a lot of damage. And I was done with the .22, at least in, in that particular situation for raccoons. Would I shoot a raccoon with a .22 today? Sure. But if I had, I'm in the house, I can grab anything I want. I got a little pump 410. If you could find one, they are, to me they are the best homestead gun for stuff like this. If you keep them, and one of the things you can do with them is you can put a bird shot in and fill the magazine with buck. Because like if you're going to see a rabbit or something, you shoot it's dead. It's no, no big deal. But you know you see a coyote heading into your your chicken house. You grab it, you just cycle it, drop that bird shot out, and rack in that four ten uh, for number four buck. Anywhere close enough to put those you know, those pellets into that animal, it's dead. For learning more about ballistics, I would recommend you go to the survivalpodcast.com and put ballistics in and listen to some of my episodes I've done about ballistics and ammo and reloading. It's too deep a subject to cover in a show like this. Maybe I'll do a show in the future about just about how ammo works. Like, what, what do all these terms mean? Grains, it's just weight. The bigger the number, the heavier it is. Why does it matter? In your situation, it doesn't matter that much. Look, economics, by a small amount, Test it for accuracy and functionality if you like it by more. Um, again, we're not going to worry about trying to be precision with which 9mm round to shoot a coyote with. Now, which 9mm round to carry as a personal defense gun, that we'll need to worry about. And if we were going to be elk hunting with a 30.06, we're at the edge of what that, that round is really made for, then we're going to put a little bit more attention into it. But here, it's not really that necessary. Don't sweat it. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, this one comes from Dusty. Dusty says, can you provide some resources uh, regarding the tax advantages one can gain from an online business? 
I remember you mentioning your wine review website. You said something to the effect that you started a business so you could uh, buy wine and enjoy and review it for it to be a tax write-off. Can you elaborate on that? Perhaps give other details that a person could do with this. Thanks for your wisdom, Dusty. Okay, let me explain something to you. I have never in my life started a business or gone on a business venture solely for the purpose of tax advantages. They are a byproduct. So the wine site that you speak of, it's now defunct. It's still there. Um, I think it still makes me like 30 cents a, a, a week or something like that uh, because it ran AdSense as its monetization model. So at the time that I did that wine site, I was very big into monetizing things with Google AdSense, which is like when you go to Google and you search and some of them are ads, and you'll still see some of it around today. You'll be on a website, you'll see ads. It's Google ads. The only reason they're there is because it was little sites like mine that ran them and went, I, I, this is not my primary revenue, so I'm not going to take it down. I'm just not going to work it anymore. What happened was Google changed the payout. You used to be able to make a good living with AdSense. I mean, I know people that made six figures on AdSense alone. And what I was doing is I was building all these little sites, little satellite websites. Most of them were sites I would knock out in an hour or two on something like, say, heavy, heavy construction equipment. And then I was practicing arbitrage. I was going to a website like 7Search, And I was buying traffic for words like backhoe, bobcat. And I would direct it at my little information site. I had ads all over. It was like half ads. And people would find it through these different search mediums and stuff. And I'd get some organic SEO working. And they'd get to that site. And they'd click it. And they'd click an ad. And back then, on a heavy construction equipment, if somebody like, clicked on, a, on an ad, it was triggered by like, the word excavator. You know, the person that's selling excavators might be selling $100,000 or $200,000 or million-dollar equipment. I might make five to $10 for one click back then. So as I'm building all these sites, I, I kind of looked at it, and I said, well, what, what do you like to do? I'm like, well, you know, once or twice a week, I like to get a really nice bottle of wine and sit down and, and have it. And I like to try to find wines that are cheap but don't taste cheap. And they go with cheese or they pair with meats and foods because it's just something I like to do. Follow your passion, but monetize it. Okay? Think smart. So what I realized was I'm going to drink a couple bottles of wine each week anyway. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be cooking a steak Friday night. I'm going to go out and try to find a new Cabernet that goes with it. Or I'm doing a salad uh, Wednesday. I'm going to go try to find, you know, a Pinot or a Cab uh, Chardonnay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna play around with what can I get under ten bucks? Like set that as my limit. Doesn't mean I'm gonna be a cheapskate and never pay more, but if I can find a great wine for eight bucks, that's cool. So well why not build a website about discount wine? And then why don't you use your SEO foo and get you know get search results instead of buying and arbitraging for things like ten dollar wine, uh, discount wine, wine under ten dollars. So I built a site, and I put a little page for every different variety of grape, and um, I started getting lots of traffic to it. And it started making me about 25, 30 bucks a week, okay, just to put it in perspective. So if I'm buying two bottles of wine a week, I'm, I'm either breaking even or the site's making me four or five bucks a week. I'm still making money, but I'm writing the wine off. But I would, I would, I would have drank the wine anyway, okay? But without the income, it wasn't worth doing. Without the income, it wasn't for the tax break. It was, here's an income 
for an expenditure that I will already be making that is 100% defendable as a deduction. And yes, I called my CPA and asked him first, is this, is this, you know, kosher? So can I provide some resources regarding the tax advantages one can gain from anything? CPA, tax attorney. CPA, tax attorney. CPA, tax attorney. Because I did like the way you said tax advantages. You know, not tax avoidance. It's a word you should never use. Don't get in the habit of using it. Someday you might be questioned and you might accidentally use it when you should be saying nothing at all. But you speak anyway. Your CPA, your tax attorney, should be speaking for you if you are ever contacted by any of these people. From the uh, Vulture Association, also known as the IRS. So when, when you're thinking about, well, I want a business for the tax advantages, you want a business for the business, and then you leverage it back against the tax advantages. I haven't touched this site in, God, I hadn't touched it when I started a survival podcast. That's how old it is. And, um, you know, it takes up no space sitting on a server, so it, it stays there. And occasionally I look at my Google AdSense revenue, which is pathetic, um, and I'll pull up its channel. And, you know, it still makes a dollar or two a month or something like that, which is kind of cool when you think about it, even though. But when Google changed how that was paid out, it was no longer worth it as a business unit for me to do anything with it anymore. It wasn't worth it just to write the wine off, if that makes sense. Because, yeah, it only took me 10 minutes to do each little review. I came up with a template, you know, and half of it was on the bottle. It's, you know, tastes like this, 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 and that. And I'd basically end it with, I would buy this again or I wouldn't. Or not only would I buy this again, I'd get a couple bottles and put them in my wine rack. And here's what I would pair it with for food. And being able to make some money, get it a deduction, and do something you were going to do anyway, that made sense. That's how you have to approach these things. Not, oh, I'll, I'll start a business just, just so I can, you know, not pay taxes. Because what the IRS says is they, they can't say you have to make money. They say you have to have a clear intent to make money. You can't write your hobby off unless you can show how you're attempting. Even if you're fa you can attempt and fail miserably. But, but that usually means you have revenue but not sufficient revenue to overcome your loss. When you're like, well, yeah, well, what'd you spend last year on this, uh, this, this, this side concern? Uh, about $10,000 in deductions. Okay. What was your revenue? Zero. Eh, wrong. You might, you might, or may, depending on your accounting and everything else and whatever else you got going on in your life and how you could prove out things. But generally speaking, if you have no revenue from something, you can't say, well, this revenue's from that. Then you got, you're, you're standing on shaky ground. And I, I don't jack around with the IRS. I, use every bit of, you know, tax deduction, you know, Kung Fu that the code, the IRS code allows for. It was written that way on purpose so that the rich people could pay very little in taxes. And, and what that means is you have to think like a rich person when it comes to taxes. But a rich person doesn't, does, I don't care what you've been told, they don't buy a business that's losing money for a tax write-off. They buy a business to make money with it. If it's losing money and they can take a tax write-off while they figure out how to restructure it and sell it for a profit, they do that. But holding on to a losing business to lose money is stupid. You just hire a consultant that sucks, write them a check at 1099 if you want to do that. Nobody would do that. Well, buying an actual business to lose money, no one would do that either. They just talk about it like they would do it because, well, it's called programming on TV for a reason. 
Here's one from CJ. CJ says, Jack, how do you automate posting of your YouTube videos and show notes to various social media? Details. Since the last time I emailed you, I finally got my new website with a proper store up and running with PA Prepper's help. I was already in the process of working on it last time, but we had to completely rebuild the website from the ground up because WordPress.com does not come, does not support e-commerce stores. Gonna let that one go. Now that I have it running well, I would like to be able to automatically post to Twitter and other social media when I list a new knife for sale or when I post a new blog. I know you have mentioned before that you have some of this automated. Thanks for your help, uh, Chris with CJ Knives um, at cjknives.com. Good job concluding your domain this time, dude. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I don't automate most of that. I automate things. And I'm big on automation with web technology. But when I post to the Survival Podcast website, it does not automatically post to Facebook. And the reason it doesn't is because I want to be part of the interaction in social media. I want to comment back. I want to engage people. And I want to be the first person that shares everything that I post on Facebook to all the other groups in my personal page and uh, affiliated groups and everything that it's going to be okay with. All right? So what I did is I put a little Twitter button. It's a little plug-in for WordPress. PA can help you with it. And uh, there's probably a better one than the one I'm using because it's been on there for nine years. But you click it, a little box opens, pre-logged into your Twitter account, and it just takes the title and a link. And you can alter it, play around with it, what have you. Okay? So I get it the way I want it to look for Twitter, and I click post. It goes to Twitter. That's pretty automated. I'm not a power user on Twitter. I don't spend a lot of time there. So I, you know, just I kind of automate that. Facebook is where I actually interact, and so is YouTube and some other places. So then what I'll do next is I will, generally speaking, cut the description tag. So now I'm still back on my website. I hit edit post. It goes back to the page where um, I made the post, where I can edit the post, and I will highlight the description, the SEO description, and I will hit Control C, and I will open another tab, and I'll go to the, I'll go to our Facebook page, the main Facebook page, and I will drop that in. I'll pull the other tag up. I'll grab the URL of the post. I'll drop that in, and I'll wait to see what Facebook does, because Facebook will usually pull a picture from the post. If it doesn't. I want a picture with the chair that looks like it belongs there and entices the person to look at it. So I will upload a picture to that post on the page. And that's why I always start on the page. And if it's a YouTube video, I'll tell you about that little trick in a second. Because that's a, that's a dynamite trick I came up with. And then I'll, I'll post it to my Facebook page. I'll then hit share and I'll share it to my personal page. And I will share it to the Survival Podcast Facebook forum. If the show was about regenerative agriculture stuff, I will share it, share it to the Regen Ag Group. If it was about brewing, I would share it to some of the brewing and mead making and wine making ones because it fits. I don't share it if it doesn't fit. And then I, I pay attention to the feedback it gets. And I, I follow up with comments and things like that with people. Okay? If I automate it, all that happens is, yeah, it ends up in my timeline and no one cares. Because there was no thought in it. A lot of times I don't copy and paste the description tag. If something really cool was in the show that day, I will manually write that in. It takes a couple minutes. is all it takes to do all of this. It takes less time to do than it did for me to tell you. With YouTube, they do have a feature 
where whenever you post a YouTube video, it automatically shares to Google Plus and Twitter. I use that feature. But most of the time when I do a YouTube video, I then do a blog post. I take the video and I embed it in the blog post. And I manually share that, again, to Twitter and Facebook. I don't use Google+, Plus, but apparently I have a pretty big presence on it anyway. And it's probably from the automation. But it's nowhere near the engagement I get on Facebook where I actually engage. You can't engage on every platform. So you got to find the ones that work for you, that you fit in with the community that, that engages on those. So that's how I do that. And I think if you fully automate social media, you lose touch. And then all you're putting out is, I have something, come get it. I have something, come buy it. I have something, come read it. You never put out, here's somebody else's stuff. Or, hey, dude, thanks for commenting. Really appreciate it. Or, hey, dumbass, don't comment on my channel anymore. You're banned, because I'll do that, too. When I get stupid people, I, they're straight off. I don't, you know, I'll reply to them and immediately ban them and remove their comment just so they see it no one else does. Just go away. Just, you, you irritated me, now I'm going to irritate you and send you off. I don't have any time for stupidity and ignorance. Uh, I have people that I actually care about that I'm trying to take care of. Uh, so that's what you do. Now, the trick for the YouTube thing. This is, I gave this away once already. This is gold. This is the kind of thing that people put into a course they charge you lots of money for. Again, the reason I have, I think every entrepreneur, I think your best today building a group on Facebook is your primary interaction point. Because your users can talk to each other and you moderate the group. And you get a lot more, if you have a group of 20,000 people in it, and you post something to it, and you have a page with 100,000 people on it, and you post something to it, more people in your group will see the post than your page, because of how Facebook algorithms work. But the, but the page is another presence, but here's what also the page does. It's the only way on Facebook that when you post an article, you can add a photo to it without it being a photo post. And you know what I mean. You're on Facebook, you see an article that has a picture associated with it, but if you click the picture, you go to the article, you don't just blow the picture up and see text in the comment section. Okay? So what I do on the blog, after I embed the video, I hit Control Print Screen, which makes basically, it's a copy of the screen. It's a screenshot. I drop it into MS Paint because it's the fastest way I know to do it, which is Control V. And I cut out using a little cut tool, Just the, the the YouTube video screen with the little play button on it, okay? And then I hit File New in MS Paint. And it says, do you want to save it? No, boom, gone. And then I hit Control-V. And that little screenshot goes, I file save as, you know, Duck, Duck Chronicle Video 11. Boom, goes into a folder. When I go to Facebook and I put the link to the article, the link to the blog post with the video in it, There's a little thing, add a photo. I click, and if it selects any other photos, I deselect it. I click add a photo. I, in, I import that screenshot so that when it's a post, it looks like a video. And my click-throughs went through the roof when I did that onto those postings. So now, yeah, YouTube automatically tweeted it and, and Google Plus it, and they won't Facebook it because they're considered Facebook and Plus are competitors. Um, but... Once I do the blog post, it's going on Twitter again. And it's going on Facebook the way I originally said. You know, and it's going to have that 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 embedded image. And that that's gold. That's that's really gold. Anyway, hope that helps you. Hope that helps a lot of you. Final one today is uh, from Robert. Robert says, question, permacol promotes the planting of legumes to help build the soil and urges the plant of use 
school species over-decorative. Paleo diets almost completely spurn the eating of legumes. What is an individual homesteader gardener to do? Jack, I know that you lead a pretty strong paleo lifestyle and are definitely a permaculturist. The mainstream paleo diets seem completely vilify any legumes, such as peas, lentils, beans, especially peanuts. Meanwhile, the permaculturists typically recommend planting legumes to help put nitrogen in the soil, among other positive soil-building qualities. How do you personally reconcile the planting of legumes for soil building with a paleo diet? Do you grow things that you won't use just to compost them, or do you eat your fresh-grown legumes and not worry about them being non-paleo if they, na they grow naturally? Some paleo cookbooks seem to think it's okay to eat immature green beans and peas, but, ne but to never eat any fully mature dried seeds. What are your thoughts on this, and what about peanuts if you don't have a peanut allergy? Uh, I eat peanuts on occasion, uh, but there's better nuts, and peanuts aren't a real nut, and they are pretty much useless to you as a permaculturist from a nitrogen fixation standpoint because you're never going to plant enough of them to make it worth doing. So uh, that's something you're going to be buying anyway. I've grown some peanuts. It's kind of fun. It's kind of cool, but uh, you think about how you eat peanuts. You have to dedicate a lot of space to them. They are a, a, a crop that's textbook for that. So... Here's how I look at it. I don't really eat a lot of sunflower seeds, but I sure buy a lot of them because my birds eat them. I grow cowpea here. You can eat the cowpea. Occasionally I might eat a little bit of it for the fun of it, but it's for the birds. right? They have a crop. I have a great big liver. That's for digesting meat. That's the way I look at it. And I do eat some legumes. And I am of the school of thought that you're better off. I think the people that say you're better off eating, you know, a green bean when it's still green before the seeds are fully mature or a potted pea before the seeds are fully mature uh, versus a dried, you know, fully mature legume, I, I think they're right. I also think that people are individuals and some people have better or worse responses to legumes than others. And myself, I am a believer of my own philosophy. And my philosophy is could you eat it in its natural state? So if you take a fully mature bean or pea in its natural state, you probably couldn't eat it, but it can get fairly mature and fairly large. So what we grow <clears throat> when it comes to legumes is some green beans, some peas, scarlet runner beans, stuff like that. We don't grow the way most people do, though. And we're mo I'm moving more to the school of thought now with the aquaponics systems going in. We grow a whole bunch of stuff, different variety. And on a day that we're going out and basically foraging the backyard – And say, well, what are we going to eat today? Well, look, oh, look, there's a little zucchini on that plant. We'll take that off of there. Oh, there's a couple, three, four. Ah, there's two dozen little cherry tomatoes and about half of them. Okay, we'll take those. And uh, we'll go over here, and there's a sweet potato bed. And we're not ready for the big harvest yet, but let's stick our hands in there. Oh, there's a little tuber. There's, there's a couple little tubers. We'll throw that on there. And uh, we'll go over here. Oh, look, look, look. The uh, sweet potatoes have tons of greens on Let's take some sweet potato greens. We'll saute those. Oh, uh, look, there's a couple beans here and a couple beans there. And on your plate that night, you might be eating like four beans. So instead of making a bowl of green beans, it's, it's this take a little of everything. And most of those vegetables either are eaten raw or barely cooked. Now, if that ain't paleo bullshit, that's all I gotta say. Because that's how our that's how our hunter gatherers uh, ate. And and this like strict paleo thing, I think it's a fantastic thing for sixty to ninety days. Because you're not gonna live like that for the rest of your life. I guess there's a few people that might really enjoy it. You probably not. But what you then do is we start 
adding things back in and figuring out, when I eat this, I start putting weight on. When I eat this, I don't feel well. And if you can eat a plate of green beans once a week and you like it, I don't give a damn. Now, as far as nitrogen, okay, we use cowpea for nitrogen fixation because we can buy, you know, a five-pound bag for $5, and we spread them everywhere, and they're a big legume, and they grow, and they self-reseed. But when you're planting that one row of green beans in your garden, you're not feeding the rest of your garden nitrogen. That's just that's like purple permaculture woo-wooism. It, it doesn't work. The, the chemistry's not there. Now, it's, it, it's a good thing that maybe if you're doing rotational beds, you grow a bed of green beans, and then... And you do the typical thing like I did when I grew up as a home, you know, a homesteader as a kid with my my grandparents, and we harvested all those green beans and canned them. The next year, you put something else in that bed. It leaves some nitrogen behind, but it's it's not as much as people think it is. the The concept of feeding things with legumes is, is you you have to do it with a long season annual if it's an annual, and a very intensive planting, and you have to harvest at the right point so that you take the plant before it starts utilizing the nitrogen. It's a little more complex than we've been led to believe, but there's no real conflict there at all. And let's say you were, wanted to be pure paleo and you didn't want to eat legumes. Would it be a big, horrible thing if you planted legumes and composted them or fed them to the, the, your wildlife or whatever? No. What's the difference between doing that and planting a decorative plant that does nothing? All right, guys, with that, I want to remind you, you can help support the show by uh, doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. It's where I review items every day, and you can go there, and you can take click one link called uh, Amazon Deals of the Day, and you can see the best stuff that's available on Amazon uh, on that given day. And you can do your search after that, buy your stuff on Amazon like you always have, and when you do, as an affiliate, we get a commission. Anything that I link to off of Amazon, I'm getting paid for. I try to be full up with my disclosure in that. Uh, today's item of the day is another um, resurrected one, one that I featured last year. It was a top 10 item uh, from 2016, and it's so damn useful. I used it like six times this weekend, and this morning, I was way behind, as you can imagine, coming out of a week like that. I decided this is what we're going to do. It's the Gerber Dime Multi-Tool. It looks like a little multi-tool, like a Leatherman, right? Except Gerber would hate that because that's their big competitor. And so it unfolds into a little pair of pliers. It has scissors on it. It's got a thing for opening like clamshell retail packages. It opens, you know, bottles. It's got screwdrivers and it's got scissors and it's got those little handy dandy pliers with wire cutters. It's small and that is a limit, but it's also an advantage. And there's a picture in my review of this item and it's on my keychain and you can see that my my key to my Toyota 4Runner because it's got basically the you know the remote built into the key. That key takes up really more space in my pocket than the multi-tool does, but yet it's always there. And, hey, if you go look at the review, you can see my my keychain, right, so that you can make a copy of my car keys and steal my cars. People actually worry about that. Yes, it can be done. No, they're not going to do it to you. <laughs> Just some people worry too much. But uh, you can see the, the EDC that I carry on my chain uh, right there if you check it out today. Remember, you can always help support our show by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and we put up a new item or review, put up an old review uh, every day at tspaz.com. With that, let's talk about the, uh, the song of the day today. So it was a real brief mention in the history segment today about the shootings in Kent, Ohio. Um, from the National Guard shooting protesters. 
Everybody always says it was students. It was and it wasn't. Uh, to really understand how something like this could happen, you have to understand what was going on. And it's not much different than what's going on now. When you see all these students protesting at a, at a college, you need to understand that a, a significant number of the people you are looking at are not students there. The, I would say more than half generally always are. But there's an awful lot of them that travel around and instigate and agitate this shit. And they're usually the ones that you see, you know, breaking windows and stuff like that. So the Ohio authorities were pretty concerned about what was going on. And they, they wanted to kind of put a stop to it and drive these people out. I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a, a governor of, of Ohio at the time that basically was, we'll use every tool we have to get these people out of here. And... On that day, what they were protesting wasn't just the Vietnam War. They were, they were protesting a legitimately illegal and unconstitutional action. And that was the expansion of the, the, the war into Cambodia by Nixon with no congressional approval and uh, no new laws being passed. And, and that's just not something a president's supposed to do. So it was a legitimate bitch. There was also still, we're in the middle of the, you know, huge concerns that communists are trying to take over the United States with some some legitimacy to that. And the communists were using all of this upheaval and pushing it and funding it. George Soros, anyone? Okay? So it's the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. I know I won't play that again. Not this time, anyway. Um, and then the students were getting very, very aggressive. And in the end... Shots rang out for, I believe, 13 seconds, and four people died, and quite a few people were injured. And this song is by Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young, and it's called Ohio. And this is a song I totally missed. I absolutely missed this song. I mean, growing up, I heard it here and there. I never really paid attention to it. I knew all about the Kent State shootings. I had a great history teacher. One of the few really good teachers I had was a history teacher. And he really went into this deep. And I, I really got an understanding for like how the country just totally, when that was over, like, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta stop this. We gotta get out of this war. We gotta get, we, all this has to end. And, um, these soldiers shot people. That, yeah, we're being aggressive and all, but they were no real threat to them. The closest person shot was 71 feet away from the person that shot them. And mostly what they were shooting were M1s, 30.06s. And um, it was a horrible, horrible event. Horrible event. And I'll tell you that I was going to play this song before we even decided to do what we're doing with the year that was the episode type theme with them. Because a few months ago, I actually heard the words of this song really for the first time. Uh, one of my Pandora channels, uh, get people like Neil Young on there, and he did an acoustic version of this uh, with a special release album, I guess, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, that song ended up on it, and I was like, I like that song, so thumbs up it. And I, I'd probably heard it four or five times on my Pandora, like working where you're not paying attention. And uh, one day I'm in my, my truck and I'm driving and I'm, it comes on and I, I, I hear, I actually hear the words, Tin Soldiers and Nixon coming. And I went, oh. I mean, I swear to God, like I'm a smart guy, but every once in a while you just don't pay attention to something. And I realized this is about Kent State, four dead in Ohio. 
And this song is the mood of the time. And I think part of why I didn't get it when I was listening to it like the second time around, because this is music from your kid, your childhood, and then it shows up in your adult life in a different form, is the, the acoustic version that, that he did. It almost sounds like a pretty song. In fact, it does sound pretty when you listen to it. It's not, but when you when you hear him sing it, it sounds it sounds in some ways nice. When you hear this version, the original version, it sounds angry. We had a very angry country, a, very, a country very weary of war, and a country in turmoil, and a country at a pivot point in the economy in 1970. We're about to go through 10 years of stagflation, and people didn't know what was going to happen. And people weren't happy with the way things were. People wanted to change, but they wanted someone to do it for them. And, and, and instead of doing it themselves, the way they thought they could get it done was go out and demand that somebody do it for them. Does it sound familiar? Let's go back to 1970. 47 years ago, Kent State shooting, Ohio, from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.